we have a methodology that we call running the numbers. And we basically just take the business and run it for 50 years as it is. We don't make it worse and we don't make it better. We just say, look, if this is our operating business, if we ran it for 50 years, what would happen? How much waste would we produce? How much energy would we consume? How much, you know, what's, what's the value of the business? You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing that, the best conversations we've had with significant brand builders, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating impactful brands. Season three is focused on unpacking the topic of branding. We talk to people who design brands, own brands, build brands, and even those who hire for brands. We explore what brands look like and how they behave across a wide spectrum, from world-renowned brands with massive budgets like Spotify to companies that are making big waves on small budgets. If you're looking for insights on the best ways to invest in and build your brand, this is the season for you. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. The wrong answer is the right answer looking for a different question. It's my honor today to be talking to Bruce Mao. I've admired Bruce's work since I was studying at Vega in the early 2000s. Bruce is a brilliant creative optimist who loves thorny problems. And over the last 30 years of design innovation, he's created a methodology for whole system transformation. Bruce has published many books. His first, Small, Medium, Large, Extra Large, was co-authored with Rem Coolhouse. And his most recent book, MC24, is available now. Bruce is a serial entrepreneur. He founded the Bruce Mouse Studio and is currently the CEO of the Massive Change Network. In this episode, we talk about the power and responsibility of design, his inspirational and often philosophical take on brands and their role in society, and how his 24 principles can guide you to tackle any problem, even one as big as rebranding a country. Enjoy. Bruce, it's, it's an absolute honor to have you on the podcast. I really, really appreciate your time and, and for coming onto the, the show with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I was uh, saying just before we hit the record button that I'm very lucky to be the proud owner of um, your, your new book, MC24. Uh, it only took a month to arrive here, but it's mine now, and I'm, I'm very excited to, to pull through it. Great. Great. So I suppose my, my first question for you is that you seem to assign a lot of responsibility to to designers. Um, can you can you talk a little bit more about your sort of philosophy on why you believe designers have this responsibility and, and what you think they should ultimately be doing with it? Well, I think that, I mean, for me, it comes from the fact that we have power. and. Uh, and with that power comes a new kind of responsibility. I mean, I think that, you know, for most of history, uh, individuals had, um, and even even uh, professionals had um, a pretty modest ability to affect the world, you know, to kind of shape the world around them and, and form the planet. Um, but that changed in the last century quite dramatically. And now people, you know, like normal people going to work 
are doing things that can really affect the whole planet and affect the ecosystem. Um, and and with that capacity, you know, it's an extraordinary capacity. And with that capacity comes responsibility. And um, it's really what we discovered when we did massive change uh, 15 years ago. Um, and it's really what MC24 is all about. It's really about understanding both your power to produce change and your responsibility that comes with it. Uh, I think it's interesting because this, you know, we see this tension that some designers actually don't want that responsibility, that it's it's easier to to almost pass it back to the clients. And then at the same time, we also see clients don't necessarily want to to give that responsibility that you know they want to keep that control to themselves like how how do you think about this like what do you what do you think people should think about when they they either engaging someone to do design for them or if they are being engaged by a client to to do design for them i i think you're right that um in some ways uh design has been you know until fairly recently back of house you know we were uh, kind of pulling the, you know, we were the kind of puppet master behind the scenes. Um, and uh, I think that's a dangerous place to be because it allows us to remain anonymous and anonymity allows us to do anything. And we, <laughs> and we can do the worst, you know, we can be part of the worst possible things um, and kind of have our protective bubble bubble of anonymity and not be kind of named in the process. Um, and I think that uh, anonymity is a very dangerous uh, idea um, and that we really need to, um, you know, we need a kind of tag or address on the things that we're doing in the world so that we can be held accountable and that we, you know, for good as well as bad, <laughs> um, you, know, uh, you know, designers are doing a lot of good, so um, I think they should be credited for the good and good and held accountable to the bad. Uh, and the same should extend to our clients that we should. And I think one of the one of the um, important roles that designers often play is really to be the voice of ethics and to be the voice of the of the citizen in a design process. Mm. Um, yeah, I did a lecture for the Cooper Hewitt on their collection. And you know, Cooper Hewitt's the National Design Museum, part of Smithsonian in, in, in New York. And they have, um, cool pin. they have an incredible collection of the most diverse possible applications of design. And I tried to think of, you know, I was looking at the collection thinking, you know, what should I do? And I tried to think, what is the common denominator amongst all of this work? Like, what makes it show up in the in the Cooper Hewitt? And I realized that the, the common denominator is caring. Mm. And we start by caring about the individual experience, the individual user, the citizen. Uh, but you can't have a healthy citizen in a toxic community. So we extend that caring to the community around that person. Um, and you can't have a healthy community in a toxic ecology. So we naturally extend our consideration 
from the citizen to the community to the ecology. And so you hear a lot of designers' voices in the big conversations of our time. And I think that's, for me, the, you know, that is the great opportunity of our time, and it's also the great challenge. I like that. I like this idea of, of uh, well, you know, we always talk about users. I, I think when you talk about citizens, it scales the importance of it up one notch and makes it feel actually a lot more uh, important than, than just the user. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, uh, I think that there is a growing awareness. I mean, we saw when we did massive change, we saw a movement, you know, that we called massive change and. And what we saw really was a global commitment to confront the challenges that we're facing. And the designers everywhere are working on that problem one way or another. They probably don't kind of claim, you know, most of them (laughs) don't claim the kind of grand gesture um, that we identified um, in Massive Change, that we are collectively doing this big thing. Um, most of us are working on kind of our pixel, you know, in this image, and we're trying to make our pixel, um, you know, as as good as we can. Um, but we know that that pixel contributes to a mosaic that is, you know, a, an incredibly beautiful image of our future. Um, and that, you know, the more that we can advance that. Uh, you know, the faster that we can advance it, uh, you know, the more the more we can scale that, the, the better the better the chance we have of getting out of here alive. Yes. So, so now, I mean, that's an it's an interesting uh, sort of like claim, and and uh, it's quite nice to to hear. Uh, a lot of the work you're known for is is obviously working on brands and creating brands for for small companies, for institutions, and then also working on some of the massive global brands. Like, what role do you think brands have in this, in this sort of dialogue that you're, you're talking about here? Well, if you think about anonymity and uh, brands, um, brands are the opposite. Brands are a signature, an address, where, where values come home to the, to the core. In other words, um, every day, you know, global companies are doing things. They're making actions all over the world, and those actions are producing equity, negative and positive. And that equity, if it's if it's got a brand signature on it, sends that positive or negative energy back to home base, where we can collect it. So, um, contrary to some of the kind of anti-branders. Um, you know, like Naomi Klein and, and people like that. Um, I think brands are the public address system of commerce. And it's our way of actually confronting problems. Uh, you know, my concern is not the big brands, it's the numbered companies. You know, it's the invisible numbered companies that are dumping chemicals into our water because we've never heard of them. We We can't control them and we're, we're reducing our environmental uh, legislation in this country. 
So I think it's interesting. So you see them as like the the, the forward face that can cash all the checks that, that if people see them and don't like them or do like them, they can send all of that to, to a single place. Yeah, I mean, the work that we did with Coca-Cola was really to help people to do that, to actually, um, you know, to say, look, this is what we're committed to so that you can see uh, whether or not we're doing it. And, um, and you have a very easy way of uh, tracking the metrics and understanding whether or not it's happening. Um, and when it doesn't happen, um, you know, they will be held accountable. Um, so, um, so for me, um, you know, working, uh, I, you know, I have to say work, you know, when I first started working with the big companies, um, it was a little bit traumatic for us, you know, because <laughs> as you said, you know, I was, um, you know, I was pretty fringe. Uh, you know, I was very much involved in a in a culture at the edge uh, of culture, and um, and for me, it was a very important thing to do because and, you know, and frankly, a lot of my friends were quite skeptical and said, you know, Bruce, why are you doing this? Um, but my approach was, you know, I knew that if we did that work for Coca Cola, that thousands of companies would follow suit that if we could set an an uh, sustainability agenda for a company like coca-cola worldwide that thousands and thousands of companies that don't have the wherewithal they don't have the leadership uh you know they don't have the resources to innovate at that level would simply follow along um, and it's exactly what happened um, you know, uh, shortly after we started doing that work, um, we, you know, we, we were ourselves called by companies who wanted to do it. Uh, and also, um, you know, we saw many other companies, um, you know, borrowing from that work and applying it in their own uh, practice. Uh, and for me, that's the real, you know, I, I think we have to be not afraid to be in the fight. and. Yeah, you know, I often say to my daughters, you can't win if you're not in the game. Mm. And we have to be willing to, you know, it's it's easy to stay on the margins and um and speculate and um and throw stones. It's much harder to actually do the work. Yeah, and actually try and get in and, and find a solution to a problem that might not be so obvious to to solve very obvious and very easy to point out but not as obvious to to find a solution for yeah so can i ask i mean if you with it, you, all your experience and stuff like I'm, I'm very interested to know what is like how would you define like what is a brand like what is a brand and and what do you think that they they should be doing well you know one of the things that um that that i say to the clients that we work with of all types. And I, I think that um, we have to acknowledge that a brand is really, um, you know, a, a form of ownership. Right? Like if you think about how they evolved, we branded steers so that if someone had that steer, they would know who, who owns it. Right? Um, and uh, it really goes back uh, that far. Um, and that, and is that kind of basic in a way that we want to know who's responsible? 
Um, and I think that's a great mechanism in our commerce and in our culture. Um, and it applies to individuals, institutions, organizations, um, and obviously businesses and businesses that operate as global brands. Um, and I think the great thing is that it captures that equity that we talked about. Uh, and so, um, you know, the, the, you know, what we say to our clients is, look, just turn the sound off and watch what you do. And if what you do isn't telling the story that you want to tell, we have to redesign it. Because what you say is inconsequential. The real story you're telling your people and the world is your action. So let's look at your action. Let's look at the action and see if that's the story you're proud of. Um, and look at all the action because um, the big difference today, uh, you know, especially applicable to brand designers, is that there is no longer back of house. There's no longer a kind of part of the world that people don't see, right? It used to be that if a brand put up an image, that's what you saw. You mm -hmm. couldn't kind of get through the image to, to see whether or not it was real or true. Uh, to interrogate an image, you, you know, you had to be the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Uh, but today, everything is transparent. Uh, you know, we've gone from an opaque world to a transparent world. And that transparency means that everything you're doing is part of your story and it's going to be seen, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, you know, our politicians clearly didn't get the memo yet, but <laughs> everything is visible. I mean, look at what we're seeing now. You know, you can try to hide it and you can, you know, obfuscate and you can, you know, maneuver all you want, but eventually, uh, you know, shit's going to come out. and. Uh, and we're going to see what you're really doing. And, um, and that means that you have to design what you do, not what you say. Now, just forget about what you say. Design what you do to be the story you want to tell. Then you can talk about it all you want. Right? And, and, uh, but if you're not doing the right things, um, or, you know, we're, we're starting from a deficit. I also think it's interesting if you if you designing what you do, then ultimately all of the people at all of the levels will be able to talk about it. So your staff will be talking about it to people, your customers will be talking about it to people, your your shareholders, your stakeholders, the people delivering things to your company will all have that experience and they'll have something that they can ultimately communicate. And then I think it almost take some of the pressure off the communications team of having to get out there and tell that story. Cause now you have multiple people at multiple levels all talking about what they have experienced and not what you've told them to talk about their experience was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, I find so many cases. I mean, if you think about corporate life, right? I mean, corporate life is taking, you know, the, like this is the bandwidth of life and this is the bandwidth of corporate life. And it's like, let's cut away anything that compromises or contradicts what we're trying to say so that we get down to this kind of squished, you know, squished little life. Um, and it's no wonder that people are, you know, unhappy and angry and, um, and not satisfied with that uh, experience. 
And I think that, um, you know, if you start to really uh, design what you do, the whole thing takes on a, a kind of richness and complexity um, that has, you know, contradictions and problems in it. That, um, but instead of trying to hide them, we're actually working on them, and we can. So now how do? And we can say we're working on it. So, so how do clients react when they they bring you in? They bring you and your team in to to work on something, and all of a sudden you start cracking open boxes that they didn't necessarily even know they had and didn't want to open. And now this what was going to be a simple design job is now turning into a look at the entire organization and everything we do uh, problem. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I want to be careful not to claim or suggest that we're always doing that i mean sometimes we have a very clear and defined project but we have developed a methodology that we call enterprise design which is really um uh looking at the whole enterprise as a as a design project to say um you know like often when we go down and look and talk to procurement we're the first people that ever talk to them about what they're doing <laughs> And, like, and what the values are in the way that they operate. And often they have, you know, they have only one incentive, which is dollars. And it's, it's often not true to the founder's vision. <laughs> it's like, mm. like you're not actually operating according to everything that, that you say you want to do. Um, and so it's really starting to look at it and say, like how would we how would we think about the matter and energy in our business in a way that is true to our our values um so um so you know typically um it's it's a positive experience uh, occasionally it's not you know occasionally it's like <laughs> whoa 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 you know what is this um and uh you know that can happen that you know, that people um, discover for themselves things in their own practice that they just never thought about. And I think that's one of the the big changes that is happening is that there's a there's a new kind of consciousness about what we're doing. And you know, I don't I try not to um, I try not to assign um, you know, maliciousness where there's merely incompetence. You know, like like a lot of things just it was just the best we could do at the time. And, yes. and we're still doing it. We've always done it that way. We just haven't, you know, we didn't figure it out back then and and we never stopped to figure it out. Um mm -hmm. so a lot of it is just we hadn't thought about that. Um and so I don't take a kind of judgmental approach with this kind of work it's really you know working together to understand you know where are the opportunities and you know when you think about a, a transparent world um the opportunities uh are often challenges that are cumulative and we have a methodology that we call running the numbers and we basically just take the business and run it for 50 years as it is we don't make it worse and we don't make it better. 
We just say, look, if this is our operating business, if we ran it for 50 years, what would happen? How much waste would we produce? How much energy would we consume? How much, you know, what's, what's the value of the business? And, you know, we look at the numbers and often the, you know, the cumulative impact is so staggering that people just are shocked by what they're actually doing. Because they're not, you know, we're so focused on quarterly reports and yeah. monthly and daily results. Uh, and we don't, we don't ever take a step back to say, what happens if we succeed? <laughs> you know, what if we're wildly successful and a, a billion people buy this product? Um, you know, what if a billion people buy this product every month? Uh, and uh, and ideas like that, so that we can start to to really understand, uh, you know, what are the implications of the way that we work. So, so I mean, I think a lot of what you're talking about is 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 organizations taking a longer view and and thinking into the future. And I suppose one of the ways that we try and help people to ground that is to understand the 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 purpose of the organization. Like, why does it exist? What what is it here to ultimately do? Um, how do you how do you help people resolve their kind of purpose or if they haven't even discovered it and and their brand and their product because ultimately if businesses are not turning over profits they they go out of business so then even if they have the loftiest purpose on earth they're going to have zero impact because they they would have ultimately uh, disappeared yeah um yeah i mean you know i need people to work with who are really enlightened i mean that's the reality of, of the work I do, um, and I've been very fortunate to to find those people. Yeah, I work with Mark Mathieu, who is one of the most uh, brilliant entrepreneurial marketing people I've ever encountered. Um, and Mark's view was: these organizations do not have the right to perpetuity. Right, like he said, we're not we're not like Dracula that we can live forever. Um, we have a right to exist if we're contributing. And I think that's a, it's such a kind of mind expanding way of thinking about business to say, you know, you have a responsibility uh, in your existence. And that responsibility is to make the world a better place. Yeah. You know, both from a business standpoint and from a, social and ecological standpoint. And, um, and if you do that, you have a right to exist. Uh, but, but if you're not doing that, um, you will be punished. And if you think about you know, how many businesses uh, from the early 20th century are still around, very few. Mm. Very few businesses have survived the long term. Uh, and you realize, you know, there's a good reason for that. because um, they were taken out by people who demonstrated a better way of doing something. Yeah. yeah. And, and they often fight. Course. They fight for it, but it's too late. It's, they're, they're too far gone. Yeah. And I think that, that um, you know, the whole concept of, of, you know, using design at the core of a business to really drive that process to be constantly thinking about, you know, how can we do this better? 
you know, one of the principles is in, in MC24 uh, is design the platform for constant design. In other words, you know, the old idea that we're going to do a kind of singular object and it's going to last forever, uh, which is still, I think, a kind of mythology in design as a kind of <laughs> highest ambition. Um, it's nonsense. It's nonsense because the whole world around that object is changing. And the idea that that somehow you're going to get it right in perpetuity uh, is just not plausible. Uh, and so we really should be thinking about how do we build, uh, how do we you know, make these things so that we can keep improving them over time mm. and not get locked into a thing that, you know, isn't, that doesn't have a future. And so it's really kind of building the long-term perspective into the operating system of the business. I'm driving with that. I like that a lot. Um, one of the things you just said was that you were, you were fortunate enough to work with people and lucky enough, but I think you've you've had a long history of of not only creating great names for your businesses, but I think you were quite clear from a from an early an early you know an early start. Can you talk a little bit about your first company that you you did and, and the name of it and the philosophy behind it? Sure. Um, yeah, the first design business that I had, I had I had a lot of little businesses when I was a kid. I didn't really think of myself as an entrepreneur, but I was quite poor. Uh, and I needed money, um, and so I had you know a, a trap line, and I had a wood cutting business, and a newspaper business. I had, a, had all little little kind of entrepreneurial efforts, uh, but my first design business was called Public Good, and that was uh, you know it wasn't a very sophisticated uh, idea. You know we weren't um, you know we weren't kind of deeply politically um, engaged we just worked really hard and i just didn't want all that energy and work going to things that i didn't really love and that i didn't think were actually making the world a better place um, and that's where i found myself you know i was working in a corporate design office and i i felt like i was designing a cage that i was going to be inside of and um and so um and so I, you know, I decided, you know, I was going to go back to Toronto and with two partners, we created this little company called Public Good. And I remember at the time, a lot of people were really upset with me for calling it that, that somehow, you know, they literally said to my face, you know, who do you think you are that you can only work on good things? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> um, uh, that's such a crazy question. Um, <laughs> you know, like... Why wouldn't you do that? You know, why why couldn't we just work on things that are good? Um, and they took it as an indictment of their of their own work. And I had to explain, you know, I really don't care about you. Like, I'm I'm not interested in you. I'm just interested in my own work, and I want to do the things that make the world a better place. And um, and I remember, you know, we had, I mean, we were. You know, we were broke, all three of us. And, uh, you know, we all lived in an apartment together, which was also our studio. Uh, and we were kind of on top of each other. And, um, uh, and we had no clients, no contacts. I mean, we were starting from scratch. And 
Um, and there were times when it was very, very challenging. You know, we had, it was like we put up this flag, you know, public good. And we there were times when it was like, let's take the flag down and do some private good. For a while. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we couldn't, you know, we thought, damn, we got that flag up there. Uh, really can't take the flag down. So the name actually was very helpful, you know, because it got us through, uh, you know, a couple of stretches where it was really challenging to do. Um, and, um, you know, and then I started my own studio. And, and since then, I've always, you know, I mean, for me, the public good concept is still the concept, you know, like how can yes. we use the power that we have, which is, you know, increasingly uh, expansive to push things in the right direction. And, you know, I acknowledge that it's the right direction as best we can understand. You know, it's not, I mean, it's not a universal right direction and we may make mistakes and, you know, I've been involved in some things where, you know, once I got into them, they were not what I thought they were and, you know, it just happens. Uh, but I think that overall it's been a good, it's been a very good way of, of, trying to articulate what we're trying to do. I like that. And uh, I suppose I can see, you know, almost looking at it, you can see the link, you know, you, you did the in incomplete manifesto for growth. Um, your new studio, your studio, massive change. I think these are all, mm -hmm. it's almost like you, you're refining the idea as you, as you go forward. And now there's MC24 and you have kind of documented the principles. So hopefully other people can, can, pick up where you've gotten to and take it to other different, more, more exotic places. Yeah, that's exactly the ambition. I mean, I think you really nailed, um, you know, what, what our hopes are for the, for the book and the project was, it's really to say, look, uh, and it happened kind of, you know, quite by accident that um, I was made an honorary Royal designer for industry in London as part of the RSA. Um, and they sent a group of young leaders to Chicago to, to meet with me. And I, and I did a presentation for them and showed us, showed them our, some of our work. And, um, and they said, wow, you're, you're a really weird dude. What kind of designer are you? Um, because you're designing social movements and institutions and brands and businesses and carpets and cities. Like what, why, how do you do that? Because we think design is defined by the product that that a person produces. So graphic designers do graphics, and uh, architects do buildings, and product designers do products. And but you're doing you know all these different things. Um, and I was a little bit um, annoyed with them, and I said, "Look, I just showed you. You, you should have been paying attention." <laughs> and, uh, and they said, "No, you didn't show us that. You showed us the results." which were really inspirational, but um, you didn't tell us anything about how you do it or how you think. Uh, and I realized that, um, that I didn't really know, that we, we didn't really understand. It was just an organic thing that happened over you know, a 25-year period, and, and the Incomplete Manifesto was part of that process. And we had a pretty good sense of you know, what we're doing on projects, uh, but there wasn't a kind of underlying articulation of the underlying philosophy. 
And so I realized, you know, I don't know. It's probably not a good answer. Um, we should <laughs> we should think about it and try to understand what are the principles that guide this work, so that if anyone else wants to do it, uh, they can also use those principles and and apply them in their own work. And when we got into that, it got really, um, you know, very challenging and and very exciting at the same time because some of the principles are really, you know, they're they're like Copernican shifts in the way that we understand our place in the universe like when you think about you know uh, we're not uh, above or separate from nature um that's a new understanding of our place in life that is different from the cosmology that we've been living with in the west for the last two thousand years mm. and we're really you know building a scientific knowledge of our place in life and in the universe that is very much at odds with what we were, you know, with what we were told for 2000 years. You know, we were told that we own nature, that we have dominion over it. Um, and in fact, not, not true. <laughs> like science says, not true. Uh, mm. We're actually part of life. And we're merely one example, one experiment in an endless experiment that life has going with form. And we're just one of those forms. And we're not, a, you know, we don't have special status. And, um, you know, it completely changes your kind of perspective on who we are and what we do and how the world around us needs to be, you know, how we need to relate to the world around us. And I think also where you spend your energy and time and, and effort and what work you create and what projects you put your time into, I think it does, it opens up lots of questions. Yeah. So, and it, and it's, you know, it's very challenging to kind of go back and look at your business and say like, is this the way, does this make sense? You know, like, is this, is this, um, respectful of that understanding and you know one of the things that i have to say that you know one of the best things that's happened to me in the last few years uh, is i joined the board of an architecture school in northern canada in my hometown uh, called the McEwen school of architecture at, at laurentian university and, and it's in the town where i grew up and um, it's the first new architecture school in canada in 40 years and uh, it's a collaboration between French, English, and indigenous cultures, uh, indigenous leaders. And um, as a consequence, you know, I've been going up there for the last few years, and I uh, have met these extraordinary people that have a very different view, you know, a very different cosmology than ours. I mean, we still put humans at the center. Mm -hmm. If you think about our literary archetypes, it's man against man. First of all, it's, it's men, man against man, uh, man against himself, and man against nature. So of the three kind of archetypes, the only one that isn't narcissistic is uh, against nature. And, um, and what you realize is that their cosmology doesn't put man or humans at the center. They put life at the center. And we all come to life together 
as part of a living world. And they privilege life, not humans. And I realized when, you know, when I learned this from them, I was like, this is exactly what I've been working on for you know, 30 years. Um, it's what I call life-centered design. It really puts, um, puts life at the center. And we start to think about how do we you know, sustain our living ecologies? How do we design them for perpetuity? And how do we design ways of living that aren't exhausting our you know, exhausting the ecologies that support us. And it, it really takes you to a very different, you know, way of working and living. So it does it shifts the shifts the measurements. Um when we when we had our, our sort of discovery call for this recording, uh you mentioned some projects. I asked you what did you want to talk about and and you brought up three projects and the one uh, can you talk about the project you did in in Guatemala and and how that took shape and and you know what your thinking was around around that um yeah that that I think is one of the one of the best things I've ever been involved in um uh, in you know in terms of you know kind of using the capacity that I have and that we have collectively to to kind of move move things forward um, it started with a letter from uh, the Minister of Education for Guatemala. And she wrote that um, she was part of a group of citizens who were uh, seeking a better future for Guatemala. And their work had somehow led them to uh, invite me to be part of it. And you know, could, I, uh, could I help them and you know, talk to them about, about how we could work together? And happened very quickly. Within a few days, um, you know, I was on the on my way to uh, Guatemala with my family for a week and to meet them and, and really sort of learn about this um, opportunity to collaborate. Um, and the first day that I arrived, they took me to meet the vice president, and they said, "This is Bruce, and he's going to redesign Guatemala." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Guys, time out! Like, I didn't say anything in cert, like." I didn't talk to you at all about that. Um, and if anyone offers to do it, you should run away. Um, because the only people who are going to do that are Guatemalans. Like, you're going to do it. And I've got lots of things I can do to help you. I can, you know, I've got, you know, I can work with you on on designing it, designing the strategy, and, you know, like, we, we can help. But ultimately, I'm going to get on a plane at some point, and I'm going to, I love yeah, you know, I love you guys, but <laughs> but I'm gonna go home. Um, and, um, and I've got my own list of challenges that that you know in, in my country that we need to work on. And um, and so they said, okay, well um, then you have to help us change the name of the country. <laughs> and I said, gosh, you guys really think big. What you know? Why, why do you want to do that? Uh, and they explained that the place was called Guate by the indigenous folks. And um, and when the Spanish got there, they really hated it, so they called it Guatemala, which is like bad Guate. And uh, they didn't like being being <laughs> there for some reason. And um, and so that and that stuck, and that became the name of the country. And and they said, you know, how would you like to wake up in the United States a bad place every day? And I said, well, you really got a point. Um, 
And so we added an extra A and we created the Wate Amala movement. And Amala is the love of. So it went from bad Wate to the love of Wate. And it really was, um, you know, thinking about um, how could people recover the ability to dream? And this for me was one of the most kind of harrowing and um, eye-opening experiences. They explained that they had had 36 years of civil war. 36 years of um, of violence and, I mean, massacres daily. Um, and the way that it worked on the ground was that the, the you know, the government forces uh, backed by uh, the Americans would push the rebels out of a territory and they would punish anyone who cooperated with the rebels. Uh, and six months later, the rebels, you know, backed by the Soviet Union would push out the the um, the government forces, and they would punish anyone who cooperated with the government. So the people on the ground were just subject to, you know, untold horrors. I mean, we met with a woman who was working with a family in, in a community where every male was killed just before the end of the war. You know, every every male, every grandfather, baby, uh, horrific. Um, and the trauma that it left, um, they explained, they they had lost the ability to to imagine the future. And you know, for someone like me, I didn't even know I had the ability to imagine the future. <laughs> you know, I didn't know it was a thing. I just thought everyone thinks like that. You know, like you you don't realize that our way of life is built on a series of foundations that are the culture that we that we rely on. And in America we talk about, you know, bootstrapping, entrepreneurial, individual, yeah, but it's all built on a, a collective foundation that people gave their lives for. You know, you can be an entrepreneur in America because people gave their lives to establish a culture of justice a culture of education. You know, you don't even know that you have it. Uh, yeah. In large part. And in, in Guatemala, they had wiped it out. You know, 36 years of the culture of death uh, had wiped out the culture of life. And so we said, you know, our project has to be to rebuild the culture of life. And that's what we, uh, that's what we did with them. Um, and we identified nine cultures that, you had to, you know, they needed to um, establish and build and really, you know, long term make a commitment to, um, including uh, the culture of dreams, um, so that people could actually be designers. I mean, a designer takes for granted that you can imagine a future and that you can build that future um, and that you can, you know, work toward executing that future. But but you know they had they had created a situation where people didn't imagine a future. When they asked their kids what do they want to be with when they grow up, they had no answer because they didn't imagine growing up. Mm. And I mean, it was uh, it was really uh, an extraordinary uh, experience. And so we did a, did our project together. Um, they launched it. It was an incredible. Experience. We hope to get a thousand volunteers. We did 
they did a big event in the center of Guatemala City. Uh, it was an exhibition on the culture of life. And um, and it was the whole thing. I mean, they, they were so beautiful in the way that they did it. I mean, it, you know, I, the experiences I've had in Guatemala are some of the most beautiful I've ever had. The first, the first presentation I did, the first lecture, they had made a pathway onto the stage of flower petals. So, you know, like when you come from backstage and you walk out to the podium, you're walking on, on a carpet of flowers. I mean, it was just one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced. And, and it was in, you know, like it, it wasn't in a kind of grandiose place. It was just in this kind of, you know, fairly um, modest place. But the experience was so inspirational and uplifting. And you realize that, um, you know, we have such extraordinary capacity uh, to, do, to do these kinds of things. Um, yeah, I, I learned a lot. And, and we're now starting on the kind of next phase of the work with them. Chris, I mean, I think that's such a, a powerful story. And I love that your, your work has turned into a philosophy and that you are generous with your philosophy and you're sharing it with people instead of hiding it away for your own personal gain. You, you're giving it out to the world. Um, so, yeah, just to, to close out, I just want to say thank you very much for all the work that you have done and all the work that you continue to do and, and for, for the work that you're going to inspire others to, to do. So thank you very much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Very, very nice talking to you. Awesome. And we'll catch everybody in the next one. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We believe that sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this podcast with them. This is our third season, and we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button so you're the first one to know when a new episode comes out. Or even better, leave us a review and tell the world how much you enjoy listening. This really helps. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork. NiceWork is a purpose-driven company helping people who want to make a dent in the world by building brands that people give a shit about. We're based in Johannesburg, South Africa and serve companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, partner with us or make a suggestion, reach out at www.nicework.co.za. And if you're one of those really old school people, send us a letter and we'll make you a mixtape.